0: You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. We open our Bibles together this afternoon. We turn first of all to Genesis 3, the verses 1 to 5. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. We turn to Romans chapter 5, 15 to 21, where the Apostle Paul comments on what has happened in Genesis chapter 3. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more Where those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many, will be made righteous. The law was added so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Then we turn to the gospel according to Luke chapter one, beginning at verse 68. There we have Zechariah filled with the Holy Spirit prophesying and saying, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. To show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. I preached to you this afternoon from the word of our God as the church confesses and summarizes this from the Holy Scriptures in Lord's Day 4 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Question and answer 9, 10, and 11. But... Does not God do man an injustice by requiring in his law what man cannot do? No, for God so created man that he was able to do it. But man at the instigation of the devil in deliberate disobedience robbed himself and all his descendants of these gifts. Will God allow such disobedience and apostasy to go unpunished? Certainly not. He is terribly displeased with our original as well as our actual sins. Therefore, he will punish them by a just judgment, both now and eternally, as he has declared. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. But is God not also merciful? God is indeed merciful, but he is also just. It just requires that sin committed against the Most High Majesty of God also be punished with the most severe, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, is stubbornness a good quality or a bad one? I'm sure that most, if not all of you, know what I am referring to because we have all met stubborn people. Sometimes we look in the mirror and we see them as well. They take a position on a certain subject and no matter what anyone says to them, they refuse to change their minds or else they decide on a certain course of action, and regardless of what anyone does or says to them, they stick with it. And as such, this particular quality manifests itself in any number of ways. For example, I have a younger brother, who when he was growing up refused to eat anything that was red red beets, red cabbage, tomatoes, strawberry jam, ketchup, you name it. He refused to eat it because it was red. And no amount of debate or discussion, not even any amount of threat or punishment could convince him otherwise. When it came to eating red food stuff. He was just plain stubborn. Well, now, someone might be inclined to level the same accusation at the person who is asking the questions here in Lord's Day 4 and 5. Because, you see, he keeps on coming back to the same point when it has to do with the fall and the sin of mankind, and that is that God must have done something wrong. Either God didn't create man right in the first place or God simply demands and expects too much. In either case, this person is insistent that ultimately man's problems can all be laid at the feet of God. On this point, he's quite stubborn. And now I dare say he's not alone. As a matter of fact, what this man is doing and saying is something that mankind has been doing ever since the fall into sin. It's just so hard for us as human beings to admit and to accept that the blame is on us alone and not on God. There's something in us ever since the fall that inclines us To blame other people, to excuse ourselves, and somehow to try to lessen the impact of what we have done. Yes, and the authors of the Heidelberg Catechism know this, and therefore they address it once again. You might say here in Lord's Day, for they address man's stubbornness head on. And how do they do that? Well, first of all, by... Visiting the fall again. And second, by reminding us of God's judgment and justice. And third, by giving us a glimpse of his mercy. Well, let's see how they do that. I preached to you this afternoon on the following theme. God of justice, God of mercy. We'll reflect together on a deliberate disobedience, a just judgment, and a great Mercy, Well, beloved, as mentioned a moment ago, Lord's Day 4 opens and there is another charge against God. And this time it's that God is not being reasonable. He's being unreasonable, it is alleged. He's demanding far, far too much of man. He's raised the bar way too high. But is that true? Well, notice, in the first place, the authors of the catechism deny these charges. The authors insist that man, as he was originally made, was able to meet all the demands of God's law. Created as he was, and we saw that last time, in God's image and likeness, endowed with speech and mental ability to analyze, to think, and to communicate, as well as with righteousness and with holiness, man has all the tools he needs to pass the test with flying colors. In the second place, while man has what it takes, the authors insist that what Adam and Eve did in the garden was no fluke, no mistake, no accident. They were cognizant of what they were doing when they took from the tree and when they ate the fruit. They call man's act an act of deliberate disobedience. And they even add that it happened at the instigation of the devil. Listen, you know, that brings us back to Genesis chapter 3. We read it last week and today we read a small part of it as well. And I didn't do that by accident, but on purpose I did so because it's instructive, very instructive for us to stop and to have a closer look at the discussion that takes place between the tempter and the woman. There's a few things here that we need to note. And the first thing that we need to note is that the serpent wants to discuss God. Now, at first sight, we think that's good. After all, is there a better topic? Is there a better person to discuss than the Lord God himself? We should all be eager and desirous to talk about God at the drop of a hat. And probably the indictment against us is that too often we are reluctant to do that. Only notice here it is the serpent. Who gets the discussion going? And that should make us suspicious. The second thing to note is that the serpent turns what God says to man into a question. Did God really say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? Only notice this isn't just a simple question. It's a question with a twist. And the twist is in the word really. Did God really say? Notice how that turns a command into a debate. And now it sows doubt. And that's always dangerous. The third thing to note is that the serpent distorts the command of God. He quotes God as saying, you must not eat from any tree in the garden. But that's not what God said. God said in chapter 2, verse 16, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. Any tree. Right away you can notice the serpent gets Eve to focus on trees and on what God said about that one tree. You see, instead of discussing the beauty of the garden, instead of discussing all the pleasures and the freedoms and the opportunities and the beauties of the place, he forces her to focus on that one forbidden thing. The fourth thing to note is that the serpent flatly denies the words of God. When he tells him what God had said about that one tree and the damage it would be or it would do to her as well as to Adam and their posterity, he says, you will not die. Do you notice the movement here? We begin by speaking about God. Then we move on to distorting the words of God ever so little. And before you know it, we're denying what God said altogether. And then the fifth thing. The serpent attacks the motives of God. In other words, he basically says, this tree is not about life and death. It's about God making sure that you stay within your limits. He doesn't want you to get too big for your britches. He doesn't want your eyes to be opened and to know the secret of good and evil. God wants to keep you small and dependent. You see, the serpent is insinuating that when God acts, he doesn't act out of love. He's acting out of self-love. Self-preservation and esteem. So what's the result of all of this discussing going on between the serpent and the woman? The result is, beloved, the well, so to speak, has become poisoned. Eve and Adam too, by the way, are never, after this discussion, going to look at their God in the same way again. There's always going to be suspicion in the air. What really are God's motives? Why this one restriction? Why this one tree? What is God hiding? You see how all of this spoils the entire environment and atmosphere of paradise? Even before Eve ate. The air was already charged with negative vibes. And so an even Adam to eat from the tree, it's not such a surprise at all. Suspicion and distrust have already infiltrated into their lives and into their hearts and gotten the better of them. And at the same time, when they do it, There's no doubt it's deliberate. They know what they're doing. We would say in legal terms it's premeditated. They buy into Satan's agenda. And they're convinced that at bottom, God wants to keep them small and dependent and secondary. He doesn't want any competition. Folks, this is about control. But of course, it's not. It's about love and salvation. It's about being put to the test, passing the test, inheriting Life and entering into eternal fellowship with God. Beloved, you and I are being warned here. Beware that you never ever go down the road of questioning the will, the commands, and the motives of God. That means don't play the serpent game. If you want to play Monopoly, fine. If you want to play Settlers of Catan, fine. But it's another thing to play the serpent game. For look where it leads. It leads to instant poverty. As the Catechism tells it, man robbed himself and all his descendants of These gifts. Talk about shooting yourself, as they say, in the foot. Rebellion against God always leads to poverty. Ignoring His will always sows bitter fruit. And notice, in addition to all of that, it also does something else. It provokes His judgment. The catechism puts it like this, he is terribly displeased with our original as well as our actual sins and therefore he will punish them by a just judgment both now and eternally. Summarizing scripture it says, God isn't just a little bit put out, or a tiny weeny bit upset, no, he's terribly displeased. And therefore there's punishment and there's judgment. Of course, I realize that's not popular stuff, right? Speaking about God's displeasure these days, about God punishing anyone, much less about God judging anyone... Whether in this life or in the life to come, all of that is deemed to be distasteful. That's not the kind of stuff you hear from any pulpits these days. That's not what Christians even want to hear. And why not? I suspect it's mostly because we have, in the 21st century, managed somehow to reinvent God. And the God who is being, by and large, depicted and presented today is almost always a God in our image and the kind of God we like. You know, he's the God of infinite toleration. He's the God of boundless patience. He's the God who always smiles at us. He's the God who never says a discouraging word. He's pliable, easily influenced, infinitely indulgent. In short, he puts up with everything and everyone. The God of much Christianity today, beloved, is a doormat. you walk on him and you wipe your feet with him. But you don't think about respect for him. That's the way it goes these days, but is that true? Is that the true God? Well if you want to know the answer then you need to go back to your Bible and you need to read and to study and compare and then what do you see? You see something different. You see someone different. You see a God who, yes, loves, forgives and blesses. You meet a God, hallelujah, who saves and hears and answers. You're confronted with a God who is full of compassion, understanding and grace. All of that is true. But you also meet a God who is true and righteous and holy. to God who's the judge. You remember what Abraham said to God in that whole discussion about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah? The haunting words, will not the judge of all the earth do right? And have you forgotten the closing words of Psalm 82? Rise up, O God, judge the earth. Have you overlooked the words of Jephthah, Let the Lord, the judge, decide the dispute between the Israelites and the Ammonites. And what about those acts of judgment? The great fall or flood? The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the drowning of Egypt's host in the Red Sea, the fall of Jericho, the conquest of the Promised Land, the exile of the children of Israel. There's so much more. Ah, but you say, that's Old Testament stuff. That's the God of the Old Testament speaking and acting. We have a different God in the New Testament and today. Do we? How many gods do you have? I have only one. Or do you have an Old Testament God and a New Testament God? Is that what Scripture says? Do we really have that kind of double-faced God, perhaps? Is the New Testament really any different? Here's a quiz. Who says the following nasty things in the New Testament? You snakes. You brood of vipers. How will you ever escape being condemned to hell? Or who says, then he will say to those on his left, depart, depart from me, you who are cursed into the terrible fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And then they will go away to eternal punishment. Or who says, I have come to bring fire on the earth? Well the quiz is up. Who says these nasty, scary things? It's Jesus. Our Savior Jesus. Gentle Jesus. Judge Jesus. And by the way, in the New Testament, don't overlook the fact That God's judgment falls on all those Jews who reject the Lord Jesus. And don't overlook that incident, the Holy Spirit, Ananias, and Sapphira. Or what happened to King Herod who was eaten by worms. Or what about those people in the city of Corinth or the church of Corinth who died because of their gross irreverence for the supper of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or what about the fact that hell is mentioned more often in the New Testament than in the Old? You know, what all of that tells us ever so clearly is that we need to have a complete picture. A balanced picture. A biblical picture of our God. And then when we do, we will see His love, but also His justice. We will see as rescue missions, but also as judgments. Yes, and when it comes to our sins, there will be judgment. only notice, it will be a just judgment. Our God is, first of all, the great judge. He created the heavens and the earth. He owns the world. He rules over all. He is supreme over everything. He is the exalted judge par excellence. But yet he's also the just judge. You and I can be sure and certain that his judgments in all things will be true and fair and right. Because with him there isn't any prejudice, there isn't any partiality, there isn't any favoritism. His judgment will be just. And in addition, he's also the executing judge. You know, in our world, a judge pronounces the sentence and then another branch of the justice system has to implement it. But not so with the Lord. He makes the law. He upholds the law. He executes the law. And finally, he's the eternal judge. Worldly judges last only so many years. And then they die. And often their judgments die with them. But not so this judge. His judgments are temporal and eternal. They reach into this life and they reach as well into the life to come. They can be eternally severe. Be sure beloved our God is the complete, the perfect and the eternal judge of all the earth. There is no other. And there is no better. Yes, you say, that may all be true. He may be the best judge. But he's still a judge. And that's always a scary thought. You know, a really, really scary thought. And why is it scary? Because none of us are perfect. Because we all have baggage. Open baggage, secret baggage, little baggage, big baggage. Because we all do sin. So what hope is there? What hope do we have in the face of such a judge? We have none. None in and of ourselves. Now, beloved, our only hope lies in another quality of our God. And that is in his mercy. The catechism gives us a peek and a preview of it when it asks, but is God not also merciful? It's kind of a desperate plea. And as well, it gives us another peek when it answers, God is indeed merciful. Oh, and how we should thank God for His mercy. And indeed, that's what the saints of the Old Testament always did. And, and they were always thankful for God's mercy. If you were to go through your Bible, start in Genesis and underline every time you find the word mercy, it's like a refrain. And the same goes for the Advent saints. Have you ever noticed how big a role mercy plays in the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ? When the angel Gabriel comes to Zechariah, he brings a message of mercy. When he tells him about his special son who will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And when Mary sings a song, it's a song of mercy. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has helped his servant Israel remembering to be merciful to Abraham. And his descendants forever. And Zechariah later on offers a prophecy of mercy when he says that God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. And the angels over Ephrata give us a chorus of mercy. And they sing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace on whom His favor, His mercy rests. And Simeon gives us a promise of mercy. When holding the baby Jesus, He says, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. You know what all of those passages in the opening chapters of the Gospels do and what more do is remind us that the God of justice and judgment is also the God of mercy and salvation. But remember. Remember the only way that God can be both to you. Is thanks to the person and the work. Of his son Jesus Christ. You know if Christmas. Hadn't happened. If the eternal Son of God had not appeared in the fullness of time, there would be for you and I only one thing to look forward to or to dread, and that's judgment. Eternal judgment. Judgment of body and soul forever. What a terrible prospect. What an awful future. But thanks, thanks be to our God. For all of us who truly believe in Christ, who embrace Him as Savior and Lord, the future has been transformed. For us, there's mercy. For us, there's hope because Jesus Christ has come and he's stood in our place and he's taken all of our baggage, all of our sins and guilt upon himself and he's paid for our sins on the cross and he's ransomed us. Praise be to the Lord for him. And praise be to the Lord for his great mercy and the giving of the gift of his son. And so, beloved, the stage is set. The stage is set for you and I to celebrate a truly blessed Christmas. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.